brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. You are listening to Radio I, your source for printed news and information. This service is intended for listeners who are blind, visually impaired, or have other disabilities that prevent them from reading. All materials are read as written and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Radio I. For further information about this service, please call 859-422-6390 or visit our website at www.radioi.org. That's www.radioeye.org. Hello and welcome to the reading of news from the Louisville Courier-Journal for Monday, February 27th. 2023. Your reader today is Bill Sally. As a reminder, Radio I is a reading service intended for those who are blind or who have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. We'll begin today's reading by first reviewing the 11 First Alert Storm Team on your side most accurate weather forecast. The First Alert 11 Storm Team is Ben Pine, Colleen Peterson, Sam Gabrielli, Alden German, Christina San Juan, Reed Yaden, and Matt Redkin. In the local forecast. Winds becoming strong today, cloudy with a couple of showers and a heavy thunderstorm. Storms can bring flash flooding and damaging winds. Partly cloudy tonight with winds gradually subsiding. Mostly sunny tomorrow. Wednesday, increasing cloudiness, becoming breezy in the afternoon, with a passing shower. Thursday, some sun, then turning cloudy. Today, expect a high around 71 degrees, with showers and some heavy thunderstorms. Tonight, the low is forecast to be 49, under partly cloudy skies, but windy. Tomorrow, Tuesday, the high is forecast to be 64 and the low 48 degrees, under mostly sunny skies and mild conditions. On Wednesday, there will be increasing clouds, a high of 74 forecast and a low of 48 degrees. On Thursday, it'll be cloudy and some sun and cooler. The high is only to be 60 degrees and the low 41 degrees. On Friday, there'll be rain oh, and snow possible. Oh, I didn't see that. Expect a high of 45 degrees and a low of 30 degrees. My goodness. And on Saturday, clouds and sun, another chilly day. Expect a high of 46 degrees and a low of 32 degrees on Saturday. Now, in the almanac of weather conditions in Louisville through 4 p.m. Sunday, the high temperature was 53 degrees and the low was 37 degrees. The normal high was 52 and the normal low 34 degrees. The record high of 81 degrees was set in 1991 and the record low of 5 degrees was set in 1934. In precipitation in the past 24 hours through 4 p.m. as of Sunday, there were zero inches recorded. That leaves our month-to-date precipitation at 2.61 inches. Our normal month-to-date precipitation is 3.13 inches. Our year-to-date precipitation is 7.97 inches. And our normal year-to-date precipitation is 6.52 inches. In the snowfall counts... In the past 24 hours through 4 p.m. Sunday, there was zero inches recorded. That leaves our month-to-date snowfall as a trace. Our normal month-to-date snowfall is 3.9 inches. Our season-to-date snowfall is 5.9 inches. And our normal season-to-date is 11.0 inches. In the air quality index, yesterday was at moderate levels. Today is expected to be at good levels. In the sun and moon cycles, sunrise this morning was at 7.18 a.m. Sunset will be at 6.34 p.m. 
Moonrise will be at 11.31 a.m., moonset at 2.01 a.m. Tomorrow, Tuesday, sunrise will be at 7.17 a.m., sunset at 6.35 p.m. Moonrise will be at 12.14 p.m. and moonset at 3.03 a.m. The first half moon will be visible in a couple days on February 27th, the next full moon on March 7th, the last half moon on March 14th, and the next new moon will be visible on March 21st. Finally, in weather history, on February 27th, 1717, the first in a series of storms to hit New England struck Boston. The city was snowbound for three weeks, with a total of 36 inches from the great snow. The first article on the front page of today's Louisville Courier-Journal is entitled, Bourbon Gambling Tax Bills Filed Late. This article is written by Joe Sanka of the Louisville Courier-Journal. With the deadline to file new legislation passing Wednesday in the State House, several much-anticipated bills for the legislature's 2023 session finally arrived. Dueling legislation from opponents and supporters of the cash payouts games proliferating in stores across the state was filed, as well as a bill to legalize, regulate, and tax sports betting in Kentucky. A bill was also filed to phase out property taxes on the value of bourbon barrels, an issue pitting the industry against local schools and governments. One added caveat, dozens of, quote, shell bills were also filed, serving as placeholders that can be stuffed with entirely new language, taxes or appropriations, and then advanced into law at the last moments of the session. Here's a closer look at the new bills. First, sports betting. While Democratic legislators had already filed bills to legalize sports betting in Kentucky, one of 17 states where it is still illegal and unregulated, the anointed bill of the Republican supermajority was filed at the last moment Wednesday by Representative Michael Meredith, Republican from Oakland. House Bill 551 is substantially similar to a bill that cleared the House last session, but not the Senate, allowing horse racing tracks and the Kentucky Speedway to be licensed as sports betting facilities for a $500,000 fee, while also allowing bets on licensed websites and phone apps. Meredith's bill also has the same tax rate on such wagering, an excise tax of 9.75% on the adjusted gross revenue of sports wagers placed at tracks, and 14.25% on online wagers, though this year's bill excludes online poker and fantasy sports from the regulatory structure. Senate Majority Leader Damon Thayer, a supporter of the bill, said last week that sports betting has picked up additional votes in the Senate GOP caucus that blocked it last year. However, he also noted it would face a hurdle that may push it to next session, as House Bill 551 needs a three-fifths vote in each chamber to pass, due to being a revenue-producing bill in an odd-numbered year. Next, quote, gray machines ban or skill games regulation. The most expensive lobbying battle in Frankfurt this session is being waged on the proliferating video games with cash payouts called gray machines by opponents who want the devices resembling casino slots banned and called skill games by the industry who makes the games and wants them regulated and taxed. Three bills to address the issue were filed Wednesday in the House, with Representative Killian Timoney, Republican from Lexington, filing two different bills to ban them, while Representative Stephen Doan, Republican from Erlanger, filed House Bill 525 to regulate and tax them. Kentuckians Against Illegal Gaming, a coalition backed by the horse racing industry that reported spending $174,000 on TV and digital ads calling for legislators to ban the games, said it is backing Timoney's House Bill 594 over his companion House Bill 539, both of which codify that the games are illegal. Under House Bill 594, the gray games in question would be differentiated from coin-operated amusement games like skee-ball, and there would be a $25,000 fine 
for operating illegal devices. A KAIG statement on the bill said if it is not passed, Kentucky would soon see the largest expansion of gambling in state history. A similar bail to ban the games passed both chambers in the 2022 legislative session, but the two could not come to an agreement on a late Senate amendment, and it did not pass into law. Doan's House Bill 525 is supported by the Kentucky Merchants and Amusement Coalition, which is made up of bar, restaurant, and club owners who rely on the games, and financially backed by Pesomatic, the largest major maker of the games in Kentucky. The group and company were also among the top lobbying spenders in January, putting up nearly $150,000 of ads urging people to contact legislators and support keeping the games legal. While House Bill 256 of Representative Tom Smith, Republican from Corbin, was filed this session to regulate the games and enact a 26% excise tax on their net proceeds, the Merchants Coalition announced it doesn't support the bill, instead throwing its weight behind House Bill 525, which instead taxes 6% of gross profits on the game. A coalition spokesperson said House Bill 525 was preferable due to it setting up a, quote, reasonable tax framework that allows small businesses to continue to operate as they are. The group's president, Wes Jackson, also said it would help keep Kentucky small businesses afloat, pushing back against the negative image of the industry pushed in KAIG's TV ads. Skill games operators are mom-and-pop shops, local restaurants and bars, VFW halls, and American Legion posts, Jackson said. We are not criminals, predators, and mafia members, as those pushing a ban would imply. As for which of those bills will move first, Republican House Speaker David Osborne said Thursday he expects that Timoney's HB 594 to ban the games could receive a committee hearing next Wednesday. Next, bourbon barrel taxation. The subject of a legislative task force last year, the bourbon industry is seeking to remove a property tax on the value of its stored bourbon barrels and finally has a bill to throw its support behind. House Bill 5 of Representative Jason Petrie, the Republican chairman of the House Budget Committee, seeks to phase out this property tax by 2039 by slowly reducing the rate beginning in 2026. The removal of this tax on the value of bourbon barrels has been opposed in county governments and local school districts in bourbon country, who estimate it will eliminate more than $30 million of annual tax revenue. The industry counters that the tax is the only one of its kind in the country, forcing distillers to consider moving to other states. Kentucky Distillers Association President Eric Gregory came out in full support of House Bill 5, applauding that it is clearly a, quote, priority measure of the House GOP supermajority that, quote, demonstrates the General Assembly's willingness to tackle this barrier to entry for new distillers and remove a discriminatory tax that puts Kentucky bourbon at a competitive disadvantage worldwide. Also a signal of its support is the fact that the main co-sponsor is House Speaker Osborne, who said Thursday he expects the chamber to take, quote, pretty quick action to advance House Bill 5. Osborne said the current tax on bourbon barrels is a, quote, a job-killing tax, and that revenue could disappear even without the bill noting bourbon maker Sazerac is buying up land in southern Indiana and other states and countries are attempting to lure the industries away with a more friendly tax environment. While the Kentucky Association of Counties did not respond to a request for comment, Josh Shaluta, the spokesman for the Kentucky School Boards Association, said the organization has concerns over the proposal. This would inevitably force some districts to consider raising tax rates to offset the lost property tax revenue phased out by this legislation, Schulte said. We would hope that, if passed, such measures would be appropriately balanced with additional state funding solutions passed in future legislative sessions. The next article from the front page of today's Courier-Journal is entitled, Software Issue Idles Workers for Fourth Week 
at Ford's Louisville Assembly Plant. This article is written by Olivia Evans of the Louisville Courier-Journal. The Ford Louisville Assembly Plant will be shut down for a fourth week, with production stopped due to a software issue with the 2023 model Escape. Kelly Felker, a spokesperson at Ford, confirmed the closure to the Courier-Journal. We are vigilant about ensuring that the vehicles our customers receive are built with the quality they expect, and we are taking the appropriate actions to deliver on that commitment, Felker added. Todd Dunn, president of UAW Local 862, the union that represents rank-and-filed Ford workers at the two Louisville-based plants, told the Courier-Journal that Ford engineers have found a solution to the software issue and that currently only a, quote, small amount of cars need the software solution applied. We will be back to normal production or getting into normal production the week after next, Dunn told the Courier-Journal. Next, how many Ford Louisville Assembly Plant employees are out of work? Nearly 3,200 Ford assembly line workers have been out of work for the past three weeks, and more vehicles have not been made. During the temporary shutdown, Ford employees with at least one year of seniority are supposed to receive 75% of their gross pay through unemployment and supplemental unemployment benefits, Felker told the Courier-Journal. The income had had a significant reduction in pay, which ultimately impacts our wallet, Dunn said, regarding the more than 3,000 employees out of work. Dunn notes that Ford has, quote, a lot of new hires right now, and due to their lack of time with the company, many of these employees, quote, don't have benefits yet. Outside of the assembly line workers at the Louisville assembly plant, the now nearly month-long halt to production impacts manufacturers across the state. Our suppliers are actually seeing the effects, so it's just more than the auto workers inside the plant. It goes far beyond. It also affects the tax base of the community and the ability to be up on your bills and not be behind on your bills at times when things are increasing, Dunn said. It's always a significant impact. Next, why is the Ford Louisville assembly plant shut down? Dunn said there is a, quote, corrective action in place for all new parts for future production. In this case, with the software issue, a corrective action means all software would show up to the plant ready to be installed in the vehicles and would no longer suffer from the same quality issue that originally halted production. The, quote, small amount of cars that have already been produced with faulty software will be reflashed, which means the company, quote, would be applying a solution with software to the vehicle that's already been built, Dunn said. No vehicles with the software issue have been shipped to customers as a result of Ford's quality control measures. Just last year, Ford had to recall 2.9 million vehicles, including roughly 1.7 million 2013 through 2019 Escape models, due to an issue with the vehicle being unable to shift into the correct gear, according to the U.S. Department of Transportation. Warranty costs related to vehicle recalls reached $5 billion in 2019, and vehicle launch problems have cost the company roughly $1 billion, according to reporting from the Detroit Free Press. Ford has implemented a three-pronged quality control approach, preventing, which is what is happening at the Louisville plant, detecting, and resolving, which is done once the product has already reached the customers, Maria Bukzowski, a quality control spokesperson at Ford, told the Courier-Journal. The idea is for the process to find any issues before you're okay to build, and then definitely before you're okay to ship and then buy, Dunn said. This is the new way to do things, to limit the number of cars built for error. Next, when will customers get Ford Escapes they pre-ordered? Customers have been able to pre-order the 2023 model Ford Escape since September. However, the initial vehicle production start was pushed back by six weeks due to supply chain problems, according to reports. At this time, no Ford Escape vehicles have been shipped from the production plant. It's likely that many Ford customers will receive their pre-ordered vehicles 
on a delayed date from their original date. Dunn, who works at Kentucky Truck Plant, remembers when he pre-ordered a Ford Bronco a couple of years ago. It took over a year and a half for him to receive his Bronco due to supply issues and parts shortages, he said. Unfortunately, it's not just Ford Motor Company. You're seeing this across the country, Dunn said. The next article is entitled, Chickasaw Park, a Playground for Generations of Black Louisvillians. Quote, A Special Place. This is written by Maggie Mendersky of the Louisville Courier-Journal. 100 years ago, most parks for black people in Louisville lacked swings, slides, and even drinking fountains. Of the now 13,000 acres of parks that exist in Louisville, during segregation, black people only had access to 145 acres. About half of that belonged to Chickasaw Park. When the Olmsted firm began working on plans for the West Louisville Park on Southwestern Parkway in 1923, it wasn't ideal by any means. The 61 idyllic acres neighbored a hostile white neighborhood, and the Louisville Leader, weekly paper for the black community, called the whole area, quote, an unfit plot of ground far out of the way. Former Metro Councilwoman Sherry Bryant Hamilton saw things differently. When she was a young girl in the neighborhood in 1956, Chickasaw Park had water fountains, tennis courts, slides, swings, and a wading pool, things other black parks in the area didn't have. She has fond memories of the concerts and festivals held there and remembers the time she and her sister enjoyed pony rides in the park. We felt like this was a country club, Hamilton said. Black families often gathered at the park. Teenagers cruised through it and children played there. Hamilton, like so many other black Louisvillians, grew up at Chickasaw Park and alongside its sister organization, the West Louisville Tennis Club. A century later, the history of the neighborhood and that park are just as rooted to that land as the Ohio River that runs alongside it. It was a special place, Hamilton said. It was our place. Today, Chickasaw Park is most widely known as a place where Muhammad Ali, a Louisville native, used to train. Anyone who's lived in the neighborhood long enough likely has a story about seeing the greatest run through it. Some even remembered him wearing his 1960 Olympic gold medal while working out on the grounds. Hamilton, who is part of a group researching the history of the Chickasaw neighborhood for a book, has a clear memory of sitting on the front porch with her father and watching him run past her house. But all that history needs to be maintained and improvements are desperately needed to keep Chickasaw Park viable for the next 100 years, said Layla George, executive director of the Olmstead Parks Conservancy. I think that we've fallen behind our peer cities, significantly, when it comes to park investment and park maintenance, George said. Really, this park is 100 years old. That's a lot of maintenance and deferred maintenance, and it's a real problem with our public park system. In the past few years, help has trickled in. Federal and city funding, donors, grants, and local partners have come together to give Chickasaw Park a $4 million facelift. Plans are in the works to install new windows and a roof at the lodge. Improvements are underway at the pond, and eventually, a butterfly and bee garden will be planted to honor the legacy of Muhammad Ali. Wilderness Louisville, a nonprofit that works to promote the development stewardship, and community awareness of public spaces in Jefferson County is currently clearing land to install a new playground. Next, the only park built for people of color. When the Olmsted firm designed Chickasaw Park in 1923, it wasn't the serene views of the Ohio River or even the treasured public clay tennis courts that set it apart from the 700 parks in the company's world-renowned portfolio. It was the people who would use it. The West End Park is believed to be the only park the firm ever designed in the United States specifically for black people during segregation. Why exactly that is, is somewhat left to speculation, said Patrick Lewis, the director of collections and research at the Filson Historical Society. The park was built in the first Great Migration, 
Lewis said, when many black Southerners relocated to Midwestern and Northern cities. As soldiers went off to fight in World War I, it left a major hole in the workforce. These industrial jobs created an opportunity for many black families, eager to escape oppression in the South. Segregation didn't officially take hold in Louisville until the 1920s, but tensions rose throughout Louisville in the late 19th and 20th centuries. In 1911, the West End Improvement Club requested that black people be banned from Shawnee Park, 4501 West Broadway, according to a report from the Olmstead Parks Conservancy about Chickasaw Park's history. The Parks Board denied the initial request, but two years later, Shawnee Park had a playground for, quote, colored fellow citizens. Similar designations followed in Cherokee and Iroquois parks, and by 1921, signs marking off spaces for black parkgoers were a common sight in Louisville. Tensions mounted that year when the pastor of Quinn Chapel AME Baptist Church was kicked out of Cherokee Park for not using the segregated area, according to the Olmstead Report. Later that year, the Riverview Farm was purchased for $81,000 with the intention of turning it into a park for black Louisvillians, according to the Olmstead Report. Feelings were mixed, though. Local black leaders thought Accepting a park of their own meant they were agreeing to segregation. Amid growing controversy, the Parks Board contracted with the Olmsted Brothers Landscape Architecture to provide a preliminary plan for the park improvements in December 1923. In the earliest days of operation, Chickasaw Park had two tennis courts, two baseball diamonds, and one football field. But funding fell short of the Olmsted firm's vision and it took until the 1930s to complete the project. The original lodge was built in 1929, and walking paths followed in 1931. Construction on the lake, where many local children learned to fish, was completed in 1936, which gave the black community a place to canoe in the summer and ice skate in the winter. More slides, swings, and a croquet court were added in the 1940s. Park use increased dramatically in the late 1940s and early 1950s following a lawsuit that allowed black people to move into the neighborhood across the street from the park. Louisville Parks didn't officially integrate until 1955, but by that point, Chickasaw Park had become a hub for the community for family picnics and weekend outings. I think the park means a lot to the black community of today, said Athira Fuqua, who lives in the area. In 1923, that was the only park we could go to, so it's like the city of Louisville handed us a lemon, and we've taken that lemon and made lemonade, and that's the test of greatness of it all. Next, a good attitude and a willingness to learn. It's difficult to separate the park's legacy and its milestone 100th birthday without talking about an organization that has grown and evolved alongside it. Chickasaw Park has a, quote, twin in the West Louisville Tennis Club, which was also founded in 1923. The organization is based out of the 12 courts in Chickasaw Park, and for the past century, children and adults alike have come to the park to learn the game of tennis. When Fuqua first biked over to the park in her mid-20s, she had just returned home to Louisville from college. She'd played basketball at the college level, and she didn't have any experience with tennis. But the man who was running the program at the time gave her a racket and his undivided attention. That changed her life, she said, and over the years, that same type of encouragement has changed so many others, too. Now she's the president of the club, and the organization has persisted over the years as a focal point for the community. The club doesn't charge families to learn the game. All you need is a good attitude and a willingness to learn. Clinics run throughout the summer, but there are also adults in the neighborhood who teach kids the game from just after the Kentucky Derby season until temperatures drop to below 30 degrees and it's too cold for the ball to bounce. Six of the 12 tennis courts where the club plays are clay, and they're considered a national treasure. They're the only public clay courts in the country. Chickasaw Park has come a long way from, quote, an unfit plot of ground far out of the way, as the old newspaper once said. 
Now Fuqua believes, quote, it serves the community in the truest sense of the word. One hundred years ago, that project was, quote, a lemon, as she put it. A century later, that's not the case at all. For Fuqua, Hamilton, and so many others, it has been and always will be, quote, our park. This wraps it up for the first half of the news from today's edition of the Louisville Courier-Journal. For Monday, February 27, 2023. Your reader for this portion has been Bill Sally. Thank you for listening. And after just a short pause, I hope you'll rejoin us for more Courier-Journal news right here on Radio Eye. This is Tom Lewis, the new executive director at Radio Eye. I feel thrilled and blessed to join the Radio Eye team, and I'm so excited to be part of what the future holds for us. And I do mean us. As a listener, you are an integral part of the Radio Eye team. What we do, we do for you. We strive to inform you and hopefully enrich your life in the process. So we sincerely want your input. I'd love to hear from you. If you have programming feedback or ideas, please feel free to email me at tom.lewis at radioi.org or call 859-422-6390. Thanks. Now to continue reading from the Courier-Journal for Monday, February 27th, we turn to the Metro section. Your reader is Vicki Trupiano. We read the obituaries first. We read the name, the age, and the location. If you'd like further information on any of the obituaries, please call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390, and we'll be glad to read the entire obituary for you. I'll repeat that number at the end of the listings. And please forgive any names I may mispronounce. Thank you. Deborah Allen, 69, Louisville. Mabel Askins, 74, Tell City. Tina D. Bell, 58, Louisville. Lee Roy Brock, 73, Peewee Valley. Jean Howard Buckler, 95, Lebanon. Edna Sugar Davis, 64, Louisville. David Dawson, 79, Mount Washington. Mace Lamont Famo, 81, Madison. Stephanie Finsel Fink, 46, Frankfurt. Walter Hammond, 93, Louisville. Lottie Nell Hogan, 82, Cave City. Vilma Jacobs, 67, Clarkson. James Jones, 82, Tompkinsville. Marcus Tyler Maddox, 24, Bardstown. Marshall W. Knapper, 75, Cave City. Ernest Cubby Noble, 80, Hazard. Patricia Murphy Stern, 64, Louisville. Tonda Villa, 57, Shepherdsville. David Timothy Vaudelaire, 72, Louisville. Sonny L. Wagoner, 81, Louisville. Wanda W. White, 95, Louisville. And Richard Lee Wright, 75, Louisville. Again, if you'd like further information on any of the listings today, Call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390, and we'll be glad to read the entire item to you. Our first article from the Metro section, Youth Detention Center Could Reopen, and this is from Krista Johnson of the Louisville Courier-Journal. A juvenile detention center could be reopening in downtown Louisville if state legislation providing funding is passed. House Bill 3, which will likely go before the House in the next week or two, is a reaction to violent crimes committed by Jefferson County youths, in addition to riots within state youth detention facilities. If passed, the bill would provide nearly $9 million toward retrofitting and reopening Lowville Center, a move that Lowville Metro Police said would help its operations while ensuring youths aren't separated from their community. But there are still logistical hurdles before a center could be open. Additionally, juvenile justice reform advocates and leaders have issues with the bill. Can Kentucky staff another youth detention center? When Louisville closed its center three years ago due to budget cuts, it was the only local government in the state running its own center. 
the Kentucky Department of Juvenile Justice operates eight such centers. While the bill would appropriate $8.9 million toward getting the center online, State Budget Director John Hicks said state leaders haven't seen its condition. While speaking with the Justice and Public Safety House Committee this month, Hicks said he didn't know what renovations would be necessary or their costs. Additionally, he raised concern about the state spending millions to renovate another government's building. More than anything, though, was the issue of staffing. We might be able to open a facility, but will we be able to staff it, Hicks said. There are nearly 100 vacant correction officer vacancies in the state's juvenile centers. Juvenile Justice Commissioner Vicki Reed told the committee, the centers generally have about 170 kids in custody at a time. Officers in the state's juvenile centers received a pay bump to $50,000 last month, and there has been an uptick in applications, but it's still too early to say if the vacancies will be filled, Hicks said. The staffing shortage impacts the center's ability to let kids out of their cells safely, Reed said, adding that the standard ratio is one officer to eight kids, but ideally it would be one to five. What else is in the juvenile justice bill? Besides reopening the Louisville facility, House Bill 3 would change how charged juveniles are processed, including a maximum 48-hour hold on youths charged with serious violent crimes or until they have appeared before a judge in a detention hearing. Parents would be forced to appear before a judge if they are found to not be cooperating with their child's diversion program with possible criminal penalties. If a juvenile is convicted or admits to a serious violent crime, their criminal record would be open for five years and only closed if the person has not been convicted of another offense. Judges have the discretion to decide whether a kid is detained, which is the way reform advocates believe it should remain. How many more would be mandatorily detained in these facilities, and will we have space, Reed asked. A judge should be able to review all of a case's facts to make an informed decision about incarceration, said Erica Parks, a policy expert for the Pew Charitable Trust Public Safety Performance Project. Generally, there is good research that shows if you can avoid incarcerating a kid that it is better, even if it is a short time like 48 hours, Parks said. Parks also took issue with the bill's language on keeping juvenile records open. Those records, she explained, can lead to fewer housing and education opportunities, and that could make the person more likely to return to crime. Having an open record can act as a red letter or stamp of some kind on a kid, and that can actually contribute to worse outcomes for recidivism, she said. Does this conflict does this conflict with Kentucky's reforms? Kentucky has become a model in juvenile justice reform, Park said, with other states passing laws based on the 2014 bill that significantly decreased the number of children in custody and changed the makeup of the charges for which they are held. Now, 75% of children in custody have been charged with a felony. Diversion is also favored over incarceration under the reforms. Evidence shows what Kentucky has done worked well, Park said. Senator Whitney Westerfield, who pushed for the reforms, also boxed at aspects of the bill, though he said he would vote for it. I wish that we didn't have to have mandatory detentions, Westerfield said. The opening of the records for those juveniles I have concerns about that being a weight around the necks of some of those kids. Representative Katura Heron, Democrat Louisville, the only legislator who voted against the bill on the Public Safety Committee, said much more needs to be done than just spending $8.9 million on an old building. I know that we need to bring our young people home, Heron said. 
However, I also know that we need intervention, prevention, alternatives to detention, and we also need a day reporting center. So I believe that even if we invested more funds, that we may be able to have a different type of solution. Hicks said the bill wouldn't reopen Louisville Center fast enough because the funding would not come until next year. Meanwhile, Reed asked lawmakers to allow kids to qualify for bail and to discontinue incarcerating those charged with certain low-level offenses. If a juvenile is charged as an adult, they qualify for bail, Reed said, but otherwise do not. Kids charged with status offenses and Class B misdemeanors should no longer be incarcerated, she said. Park said research shows if a child is sent to a detention center, keeping them in their community leads to better outcomes. Given that Jefferson County has the most children in custody, 26%, it makes sense the city would have its own center. But, Park said, she worries about uh, if it's built, they will come mentality. If beds are available, then system stakeholders are more likely to put kids in there, she said. Moving on. Poll shows most Kentuckians oppose anti-trans legislation. At least 10 bills regarding the LGBTQ population, particularly trans youth, have been filed in 2023. And this is from Olivia Krauth of the Louisville Courier-Journal. As fervor over anti-transgender legislation mounts, a new poll found a majority of Kentuckians believe decisions over a transgender teen's health care should be left with the parent, not determined by the state. A new Mason-Dixon poll released Thursday by the Fairness Campaign, a pro-LGBTQ rights advocacy that paid for the poll question, showed 71% of respondents oppose laws letting state leaders overrule parents' wishes for gender-affirming care for their child. Opposition to such legislation was widespread across political parties and regions of Kentucky. Less than one quarter of people supported such laws, the poll found. The poll surveyed 625 people in mid-January, and the margin of error was plus or minus four percentage points. It is clear that Kentucky voters do not support this type of government overreach that infringes on the rights of parents to make the best, most informed choices about their children's health care in consultation with medical professionals, said Chris Hartman, who leads the Fairness Campaign. <clears throat> At least 10 bills regarding the LGBTQ population, particularly trans youth, have been filed in Kentucky's legislature in 2023. The poll's release comes days after Republicans filed House Bill 470, a sweeping measure that would virtually prohibit anyone under 18 from receiving gender-affirming care whether that be medical or tied to a social transition, regardless of the wishes of the child or parent. In a rare move, HB 470 received its first reading of three prior to its official filing Tuesday and an immediate assignment to the House Judiciary Committee. As of Thursday afternoon, 36 lawmakers have signed on to co-sponsor HB 470. Transgender individuals and their allies have testified this session on the impact the legislation could have on trans youth, who already experience higher rates of suicidal ideation and of suicide. My faith teaches me that every child is a child of God. Governor Andy Bashir, a Democrat running for re-election, told reporters Thursday, Research makes it pretty clear that these bills would cause an increase in suicides among our youth, he continued. I can't be for anything that's going to result in dead Kentucky children, and I wish others would look at it that way. What anti-LGBTQ legislation is being considered in Kentucky? 
House Bill 30 would prohibit trans and non-binary students from using the school bathroom tied to their gender identity. House Bill 58 would allow health care providers to refuse to provide services that violate their conscience, potentially including providing gender-affirming care to trans individuals. House Bill 120 would similarly to House Bill 470 prohibit gender-affirming care for minors. House Bill 173, its twin bill, Senate Bill 102, includes several anti-LGBTQ components, including a bathroom ban, a prohibition on discussions of sexual orientation or gender identity, limitations on education materials typically used to challenge books with LGBTQ themes, and requires teachers to out their students to their parents. House Bill 177 would also require teachers to inform parents if their student wants to use new pronouns and allows teachers to misgender students. Discussions about gender identity or sexual orientation would be prohibited. House Bill 470 would virtually prohibit gender-affirming care to anyone under 18, putting care providers at risk of losing their license or facing criminal charges for providing transition services. It also requires educators to tell parents if their child asks to use a new name or pronouns or if their child's gender expression changes. House Bill 585 would require someone to be listed as either male or female on their birth certificate, banning options to designate a non-binary person. Senate Bill H, I'm sorry, Senate Bill 115 would place broad restrictions on where drag shows can take place potentially causing drag performances to be virtually obsolete. Senate Bill 150 would allow teachers to misgender their students. Reporter Matt Glowicki contributed to this article, and you can reach Olivia Krauth at O-K-R-A-U-T-H at CourierJournal.com. In the last article from the Metro section, Former JCPS coach teacher charged with seeking sex from a minor, and this is from Ana Rocio Alvarez Bernies of the Louisville Courier Journal. A former Jefferson County public schools baseball coach and teacher was indicted this week on federal charges that he had attempted to persuade, induce, and entice a minor to engage in sexual activity, according to court documents. Kevin O'Donnell, 22, has been charged with one count of attempted online enticement of a minor, meaning he attended to convince a person who was younger than 18 years old to engage in sexual contact. He was indicted Wednesday in U.S. District Court. Court documents in the case allege an undercover FBI agent got in touch with O'Donnell through a social media website and O'Donnell asked to meet at a location in person after having a conversation with sexual context, despite the agent having identified themselves as a 14-year-old girl. O'Donnell was arrested when he arrived at the target location, the I'm sorry, the charging document said, where he said he made a bad decision tonight and admitted receiving a message that the person he was talking to was 14, though he said he wasn't actually going to engage in the sexual acts the two had discussed. O'Donnell had previously served as a pitching coach at Eastern High School last season and had been working as a science teacher at Mazik Middle School until last December when he was removed from both positions and reassigned amid an investigation involving Louisville Metro Police's Crimes Against Children Unit, Jefferson County Public Schools Police and Child Protective Services into contact he'd allegedly had with members of the baseball team. Mark Hebert, a JCPS spokesperson, confirmed Friday that O'Donnell is no longer employed by the district. 
O'Donnell entered a plea of not guilty at an arraignment hearing Friday morning, according to court records. He's set to appear back in court on May 1st. You can reach Anna at A-B-R-I-N-E-Z at gannett.com. We have another article with local news. Um, Why neighbors are fighting a Louisville church over its plans to build affordable housing. And this is from Bailey Loosemore of the Louisville Courier-Journal. Residents in Louisville's Chickasaw neighborhood are banding together to fight construction of a new affordable housing complex on a church's West Broadway property. Neighbors of Christ Temple Christian Life Center have filed a petition with hundreds of signatures asking city officials to deny a rezoning request that would let the church build a 42-unit apartment building across from Shawnee Park. The apartments would be affordable to people earning up to 60% of Jefferson County's area median income, or about $41,000 for a two-person household, and at least eight would be reserved for young adults who'd aged out of foster care. Those against the development say they understand the need for affordable housing, but they're concerned about increased traffic, limited parking, I'm sorry, limited parking, and designs for the building, which they say looks like a prison and is not compatible with nearby structures. I'm not opposed to affordable housing. I think it's great, neighbor Jean Griffin said, but I don't think that's the place for it. At a deeper level, the dissenters say their neighborhood already has too many low-quality rentals that don't build wealth for its mostly black residents. They're angry the church demolished a historic home where it now plans to build the housing, and they're skeptical of any groups presenting their ideas as something that's good for the neighborhood, even an African-American church that's been part of the community for 90 years. We're not against affordable housing, but we are against exploitation of our neighborhood under the guise of affordable housing, said Dre Dawson, a co-chair of Kentucky Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, who signed the petition. A lot of times what's presented to the West End neighborhood as something good isn't always that. A public hearing on the proposal is scheduled with Louisville's Land Development and Transportation Committee for 1 p.m. March 16th at 514 West Liberty Street. Ahead of the meeting, here's what to know. What are the affordable housing plans? Christ Temple Christian Life Center has filed plans for Renaissance on Broadway, a three-story apartment building with a mix of one- and two-bedroom units. Designs initially called for 55 apartments across four stories, but architecture firm Luckett and Farley scaled them back in response to concerns the building would be too large, representatives said at a February meeting. In addition to 42 apartments, The building will include offices, an exercise center, a computer lab, a laundry facility, and a community garden. Michael Ford, senior pastor at the church, said the project is expected to cost $14 million. Residents living in the complex will be invited to take part in the church's programs, including Children Against Negativity, which mentors students through high school, and the Master Builders Academy, which teaches financial literacy and entrepreneurship skills. Deacon Michael Reed said several congregants have served as foster parents, and reserving some units for those who've aged out of care will allow the church to further support them as they pursue careers in higher education. We want to get them to a point where they're able to own their own homes, he said. We didn't want just to be a housing place, but to add to the community. The church is also partnering with Toyota and Ford to make four electric vehicles available to anyone in the neighborhood through a ride-sharing program. We wanted to look at how do we help change the trajectory of our community 
Ford said about the housing and programs. How do we take it from where we're at now and pour some resources in and then let the dominoes begin to fall throughout all of this area? Why was the historic home torn down? The proposed site was previously occupied by the Peter C. Dorhofer House, built in 1908 by tobacco tycoon Basil Dornhofer as a gift for his son. The elder Dorhofer had also built a larger mansion next door, and both homes were eventually added to the National Register of Historic Places. The properties housed a school run by the Sisters of Loretto before they were purchased by Christ Temple in 1974. And though the church initially used the smaller home as transitional housing, it vacated the building by 2002, according to a city document. Christ Temple sought to demolish the building in 2010, saying it had deteriorated beyond repair, but neighbors successfully petitioned the city's Landmarks Commission to designate it as an individual landmark. In 2021, the church filed a wrecking permit request again, and though it was required to obtain special approval, Christ Temple was mistakenly issued the permit by city employees. The house was demolished in June that year. It's unfortunate that's how that happened, Ford said, but it wasn't anything nefarious on our part. The larger mansion remains standing and has been converted to 12 apartments managed by the church. Why are some neighbors against the development? The church's explanations have done little to appease some neighbors who say they're upset at never properly maintained the homes. As the mansion that remains, paint is just rolling back off of it. The dumpster is always running over with furniture and glass. They've just let that property go, said Vanessa Lackey, president of the Westover Neighborhood Association, which is leading the charge against the new development. They're disrespecting us as neighbors, and we're tired of it. Lackey and other residents say they found out about the church's plans after designs had already been drawn up, and they take issue with the church not asking what they felt was most needed at the property or how it should look. We are David and they are Goliath because it's like they already have this proposed in mind and what they feel that we need, Cherise Bradley Logston said. It shouldn't be a situation where you're basically telling somebody this is what we're going to do and you have to accept it. Veronica Craig, who lives in one of the mansion's apartments, said she disagrees the complex won't be good for the community. She's been a member of Christ Temple for more than 10 years and said she thinks some neighbors have been given the wrong impression of the church and its plans. For instance, several people who signed a petition opposing the development cited inaccurate information when contacted by the Courier-Journal, including that it would house up to a thousand renters or serve as a halfway house. When you sow seeds of fear into a neighborhood, people run with those fear seeds without really trying to find out what's going on, Craig said. You can reach reporter Bailey Loosemore at B-L-O-O-S-E-M-O-R-E at courier-journal.com or 502 582-4646. Let's end today's reading with um, something to look forward to. Longtime Louisville seasonal restaurant Dairy Castle is reopening. Here's one, and this is from Dahlia Gabor. A seasonal Louisville restaurant is about to open. Dairy Castle, the popular fair-weather quick-service restaurant and ice cream stand, will reopen at 575 Eastern Parkway on March 7th. The restaurant typically stays open from March to September, but last fall had to close in early August due to a staffing shortage. Here's what to know about the upcoming season. Dairy Castle reopens for its 2023 season on March 7th. The restaurant is open between 11 a.m. and 9.30 p.m., Monday through Saturday, and Sunday from noon to 9.30. Dairy Castle purchases are cash only. What's on the menu? 
They'll be serving ice cream, chili dogs, and other treats, which they've been serving since 1976. Ice cream cones or cups run between $2 and $3.75 at Dairy Castle, while waffle cones run $2.75 to $3.50. The restaurant also serves flurries with one topping, $4 to $7, ice cream floats and sodas, $2.25 to $4.25, Slushies, sundaes, and hot food items like hot dogs, nachos, and tacos in a bag. You can reach food reporter Dahlia Gabor at dghabour at gannett.com. This concludes excerpts from the Courier-Journal for Monday, February 27th. Your reader has been Vicki Trubiano. Please stay tuned for continued programming on Radio I.